The word of the Lord again from uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. And it says this, And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked around, and there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. This is the word of the Lord. You'll have to pardon me with um, not keeping track of who's up, down, not in between. You are all seated, right? Yeah. Awesome. Then I won't feel bad about launching into the sermon and everybody standing, waiting to be seated. So, um, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. Bread and water. Punishment? I don't know if you're aware of this. Perhaps you are. I had always uh, kind of heard of something about, you know, rations of bread and water. Apparently that's part of the maritime, uh, I don't know if you'd say justice, code of justice, but, but, it, but on the sea and, and especially even in the, the U.S. Navy, as I understand it, that has been a form of punishment to, for someone who's committed perhaps some Probably not real major offenses, but, but after so many times of not appearing for, for muster when they're supposed to be, or, or perhaps for not following through on a duty for behavior or language that is not appropriate, a uh, commanding officer can, can meet out the punishment of, of rations of bread and water and being confined for three days. January 1st, 2019, that punishment was actually just removed off of the books from the Navy. And it wasn't because it was cruel and unusual. I think it had more to do with the fact that it, it just seemed so archaic to people because apparently those who had such punishment could eat all the bread they wanted and water for that matter. But I guess it was to get their attention to, to make them aware of the fact that, um, you know, they need to shape up. So bread and water, a form of punishment or maybe something more. For that's where we find ourselves with the prophet Elijah. I don't know if you remember, recognize that name from the Old Testament. The book of Kings talks about especially these two great prophets, Elijah and then Elisha. But this is Elijah and um, he finds himself, well, he put himself there underneath a broom tree, a juniper tree. He was sleeping and this angel comes along and says, here's bread and water. Rise and eat and drink. And so he does. I don't think he saw that as punishment. Although, the way he was feeling, maybe he did. And to explain that, we need to back up a little bit. Now, for those who may not recall the account of Elijah from chapter 18 of 1 Kings, and you're welcome to take a look at that at some point today, tomorrow, the next week, or whenever, get into God's word. But there was the account, one of the most spectacular, I think, certainly, of one of the contests on Mount Carmel, 
where it was Elijah, the lone prophet of God, versus 850 prophets of a couple false gods, namely Baal or Baal and Ashtoreth. You see, these prophets had come about because the king of Israel at the time, King Ahab, you might recognize his name, had married a lady contrary to what God's plan for his people were. You might recall that according to the ceremonial law, God had said, don't marry outside of the chosen people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the 12 tribes of Jacob. But Ahab, the king, didn't listen to that. He married Jezebel. You've heard that name before. And not only was she not of the tribes of Israel, she was actually the daughter of a pagan priest. And so when she married King Ahab, she saw this as a great opportunity for for religion expansion. And so she introduced, if they didn't know of it before, this wonderful practice of worshiping gods like Baal and Ashtoreth and all of the fun that goes with it. In fact, she made sure that the prophets, these 850, would be on the government payroll. And she fed them, took care of them, gave them their salaries. The people of Israel, who hadn't spent time as God had desired in worshiping the true God and, and, and praying and listening to him, were very easily persuaded to follow this other path. I mean, after all, it comes from the government. It must be right. And so they said, sure, we'll check out this Baal and Ashtoreth. And if we like it better than serving the true God, then, then look at this. We'll do that. So it's in this context that Elijah is called to call the people back. Because God doesn't want his people to go astray. And so in this particular case, he called Elijah to set up a competition. And he gathered the people of Israel at Mount Carmel in the far northern part of Israel. And he said, we're going to, I'm proposing a competition, you might recall. And he said to the prophets of Baal and ultimately to the people, he said, here's what we're going to do. We're each going to offer a sacrifice and then each are going to call on our gods and whichever God responds by consuming the, the offering with fire, would you agree that that is the true God? And the people thought about it and said, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. Why don't we watch? And so Elijah said to the 850, you guys go first. You can pick which ox you want to use. And so they chose a bull. They cut it up, put it on the altar. And then this began relatively early in the morning. And they began to pray, ask their gods to respond. Now, one thing we want to make sure of, and that is when people call on false gods, although they may be nothing but stone or wood, or green. When people call on false gods and place their trust, there is indeed many times, quote, power that accompanies those false gods. The devil is real. But in this case, we are reminded of who ultimately is control, even of the devil and the false gods. Because when they called out to their gods, as they say today, crickets. And so Elijah 
In fact, he even started to have a little fun with them. He kind of mocked them and taunted them. Can we say he did some trash talking? <laughs> hey, fellas, maybe you need to call a little louder. I don't think your, God, your gods are listening. Maybe they're hard of hearing. Maybe they're sleeping. Maybe they went on their summer trip up north to the lake. In fact, he even went so far as to say, maybe they're, maybe they're indisposed, and that's why they're not responding. Well, when the gods didn't respond, these priests got more and more frantic and, and began to dance and gyrate and throw themselves on the ground. They even cut themselves to draw blood, thinking that that's how indeed to get their attention, to get their gods to do what they were asking them to do, but nothing. So then it was Elijah's turn. And at about the time of day when the evening sacrifice was to be offered, according to the Levitical law of God, Elijah calmly built the altar, sacrificed the bull, placed it on the altar, but that wasn't good enough. You might recall he, he had a trench dug around the altar. And then he told the people, he said, douse this with water. And three separate times, people came with containers of water and dumped it onto the wood, the sacrifice, the ground, and there was so much water left over that it was in the trench around the altar. A sopping wet sacrifice. And then he prayed. But he prayed to the true God, to the triune God, to the God who was known as Yahweh. And he said, Lord, do your thing. And he did. He sent down fire immediately from heaven that consumed the offering, consumed the wood, consumed the altar, even licked up the water in the trench. Now that's fire from heaven. And the people, oh, maybe he is God. And in fact, they were moved by the Holy Spirit to call out those words that, that we're told that the chapter 18 ends with Yahweh, he is God. My God is Yahweh. He is the Lord. And since the penalty for false God worship is death according to God's law in that time, those 850 were indeed put to death by the sword on that day. I can't imagine what that would have been like to see God acting 850 to 1 but you're on the side of the right God and boom he demonstrated it. But that's where chapter 19 begins what we just heard Ryan read and that is King Ahab who we certainly get the impression that he was well, let's just say he wasn't the one who was really in control in the relationship and for that matter in the kingdom. And so Ahab, uh, who apparently was there or heard about it firsthand, comes to his wife Jezebel and says, um, yeah, Jezebel, um, I got some bad news for you. Oh, what's that? Well, um, you know those 850 prophets that we feed at our table and we pay for their salaries and all that? Yeah, what about them? Um, well... Well, I hate to tell you this, but they're dead. 
What? They're dead? Yeah, um, yeah, somebody killed them. Well, who killed them? Um, you, you remember that, that guy who says he's a prophet of the true God? Yeah, his name's Elijah. Remember him? Yeah, yeah, he had him put to death. There was this contest and the people and blah, blah, blah. So I know you didn't want to hear that, but hello, she then issues the, the threat against Elijah that we heard. She sends a messenger and says, 24-hour notice. You will be dead by this time tomorrow, is what she told Elijah. Well, we're told that Elijah was afraid. And in fact, he ran. He ran from the farthest most point of Israel in Mount Carmel all the way down to Beersheba, which is the far southern tip. And then he left his servants there and he went by himself. He went into the wilderness, found this uh, solitary broom tree. And did you hear his prayer? It says that he pleaded for the Lord to take his life. It is enough now, Lord. Take my life, is what he said. I'm not sure I can appreciate the power of that prayer, the despondency of that prayer, where he must have been in order to utter such words. But then again, maybe I can imagine that. Maybe you can imagine that. Maybe you don't even have to imagine it. Maybe you have been there. Maybe you know what it's like to be in such a place where you're saying, Lord, I'm sorry, but I don't want to live anymore. Take my life. I've had enough. What caused Elijah to do this? Well, scholars, uh, theologian types, pastors, we all get to put in our two cents on these kind of things. Of course, some opinions uh, carry much more weight than, uh, than others. But those who know a little bit say, you know, one of the reasons that, that Elijah felt this way was perhaps because in light of the great victory on Mount Carmel, and then to be scared by the queen and run for his life, perhaps by the time he got down to that broom tree, he realized how sinful he had been, how he hadn't trusted God, and how guilty he was, and he felt that there was no way the Lord could forgive him, and so therefore he said, take my life. Sin will do that to people, by the way. The guilt of going against God, of going against conscience, of spending your life trying to rationalize what you want to do, all the while knowing that God's law has been written on your heart and your mind, that certainly can lead a person to eventually say, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. If it wasn't that, perhaps it was a case where Elijah, having been used by the Lord in this tremendous way on Mount Carmel, thought from that point on everybody, even this, this pagan queen, should have been 
come, to, come around to the truth. And that although the people were chanting the right thing, when the government, when the queen and the king now sent threats and doubled down rather than saying, oh, maybe you're right, Elijah, that may have left him disillusioned. And he may have gone to this point saying, Lord, what's the point? I mean, you sent me to change the world and yet they're still threatening my life. By the way, I'm all alone, so he thought. You know, that can move somebody to wish their life was over, feeling all alone, being disillusioned with what God had called them to do. Did you notice in his prayer, you may have, maybe not, where he said, it is enough, Lord, take my life. And then he says, for I am no better than my fathers. I don't know, is there anything wrong with being like your fathers? Some have speculated that perhaps Elijah had this Messiah complex, that, that he was in, indeed there to change the world, save the world, and that, and that nothing should ever go wrong. You know, Martin Luther commenting on this section of scripture, he said, basically, I'm glad that the Holy Spirit included this chapter in the account of Elijah. So if nothing else, we realize that these prophets, these people of God that did such amazing things were nothing but ordinary people who also experienced the downs, the depressions, the times when they feel like life can't go on. Whatever the reason, that's where Elijah was. Whatever the reason, we may be there, you may be there. God knows. And even if we are praying like Elijah, Lord, take my life. Thanks be to God that sometimes God's answer to prayer is a word that is two letters long. Boys and girls, do you know what that word might be? It starts with an N and ends with an O. Do you know what that is? You don't know what it is? Oh, that's the answer. You're right. No. You know what? Thanks be to God that God sometimes answers prayers with a no. Now, we may not like it. We love it when God answers prayers the way that we're asking them and according to our will. In fact, isn't that our synonymous way of saying that God answered our prayers? We, it, it, it implies that he did it what we want. Yes, God answered my prayers, and what does that typically mean? He did things, everything that I wanted him to do. Now, of course, we also know that sometimes God says, not yet, wait. But how often do we actually consider the fact that maybe God's answers to some of our prayers are that simple two-letter word, no. Thanks be to God, in this case, that was the truth. He did not take Elijah's life. And perhaps we have prayed in the same way. And I'm sure there's many prayers that we can hopefully look back upon and say, thanks be to God that God said no. But even though God says no to us, that does not mean that he doesn't care 
that he doesn't love, that he isn't there to give what we need for that moment. In the case of Elijah, bread and water. No, but you don't, you guys don't smell any bread anywhere, do you? I, I thought for a minute I was smelling, oh my goodness, what is this on the altar? What is this? Could, oh my goodness, that smells good. Oh wow, could it possibly be? Could it, could it possibly, oh my, this is a fresh, it's still warm. <laughs> it's still warm if I can unwrap it. It's, it's still warm. It's, it's a cake baked on hot stones. Uh, well, not really, it's called a bread maker, but, um, um, but an angel did this for me this morning. My wife, yes. Um, but this is what he did for Elijah. An angel wakes him up and says, arise and eat. The journey is too much for you. One of the first things that the child of God must come to grips with, no matter how self-sufficient we are, no matter how much we've accomplished, no matter how brilliant we may be, no matter how, excuse me, no matter how gifted we may be, no matter how great things may be going, no matter how much we've been able to accomplish, we need to realize that the journey is too much for us. We cannot do it alone. And we shouldn't be surprised when we may find ourselves like Elijah. But when we recognize that the journey's too much, when we realize that we cannot do this on our own, then maybe we are open to what God has for us, the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me will not hunger, and whoever comes to me will not thirst. I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven to give life to all people, and whoever takes and eats, I will raise them up at the last day. I will never cast them out. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Of course, Jesus was referring to the people in the Old Testament in the days of Moses when they were wandering, had nothing to eat. God sent down literal bread from heaven that they would gather every day to eat. But Jesus is not just saying that because they ate the manna, they died. I think he's also talking about the fact that those who received the bread but didn't acknowledge the giver, the one who was in control of their lives, the one who loved them and guided them and forgave them, that they in fact died eternally. But Jesus says whoever eats this bread will not die. Is that an amazing thing? Does that sound like punishment to you? Or does that sound like an incredible 
reward. The bread of life. The bread of heaven for you. You are invited to receive that. And it doesn't matter how old you might be in order to receive the bread of life, which is Jesus himself. And then Jesus gives an even, an even more tangible way that we receive the bread of life. And as the scripture directs us, when we come to that point in life where we've, we've been instructed in the faith and so forth, we have the literal opportunity to eat the bread of life and drink the wine, which are his body and blood, which we will have the privilege of doing today. The journey is too great. Eat the bread of life. Come to your Savior. In his name, amen. And now may the peace of God which passes all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.